from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, we'll talk about deep learning and artificial intelligence with one of the smartest guys in Silicon Valley. We'll talk about the impact of President Obama's clean power plan on disadvantaged communities. And we'll visit with our French connection about some upcoming and exciting cross-cultural collaborations. Et le voilà, this week on 350. It's Friday, November 6th, 2015. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me here in Green Biz Studio, as always, is Associate Editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. How's it going? It's going good. Uh, have you caught your breath yet from uh, post-Verge? Trying, trying just in time to start really thinking about how fast COP21 is coming up. I know. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. In fact, you know, the Monday of this week, right after Verge, I mean, Verge ended Thursday night, and, you know, we took Friday kind of off, and Monday we came in and we had a deep planning session on Greenbiz Forum for February in Scottsdale. The hits just keep on coming. Yeah, I know, right? And I hear you were busy this week over at BSR in San Francisco. Yeah, the BSR conference, which I always go to. In fact, I'm the only person uh, in the world and presumably other planets who's been to all 23 BSR conferences. Wow, quite a claim to fame. I know. In two years, they give me a Get a Life Award or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's a great conference. And Aaron Kramer, the uh, president and CEO of BSR, is a very close friend. And and, and, and I, they just do a terrific job of bringing a slightly different slice than we bring together because it's got a lot more of the social aspect and women's issues and labor issues and human rights issues, as well as environment. And I uh, led a uh, main stage uh, session on uh, Thursday with uh, on, on COP21, which again, we're going to talk about in a few minutes, uh, but uh, with Hannah Jones from Nike and Nigel Topping, who's the uh, CEO of We Mean Business, which is a collaboration of six big groups, and uh, Edward Cameron, who's kind of the climate carbon guru at BSR and a really, really fascinating, smart person, and uh, really talked about you know the, the, how companies are looking. I mean, just for example, Hannah Jones, uh, who I just respect uh, among all uh, chief sustainability officers, is one of the best over at Nike isn't going to COP this year. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard a little bit that some executives are thinking sort of like, well, I'll be represented by an industry group or an interest group. What are you hearing? Yeah, that's kind of it. I mean, there'll be plenty of companies there, and, and we'll, we'll we'll be there too, Lauren, and we'll be able to talk to a number of them and bring them to the 350 audience. Um, but I think a lot of companies are saying, I don't know that I'm additive to be there. And so I just, I'm, I'm going to let, I'm going to be represented by some of the other business groups. And what's nice and what we mean business is, is that it, it, it's series and BSR and the World Business Council on Sustainable Development and the B team and uh, a couple other groups, Climate Group and some others. I mean, they're really coming together with one voice. And that's the first time this has happened. Right, right. I think um, it was actually Aaron from BSR who on one of our webcasts in the run-up to COP21 was saying that really kind of the primary time for businesses to be getting engaged is now or not even now, a couple months ago, um, sort of getting in before the horse trading really starts in Paris. I think he said something to the effect of roaming aimlessly around the halls um, at the COP21 site isn't really going to get the job done. It's more about what you do in advance. Yeah, and there's also talk about 
you know, that the world doesn't, uh, you know, necessarily stop or climate world doesn't stop on at the end of COP. And so one of the questions I asked them and we, t- we talked about, and it's a, an ongoing theme is, what are you doing on Monday morning, specifically December 14th, 2015? And so I think, you know, part of that is, 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 is where things go from here. So we're going to talk more about that. But BSR was great. I think that, that might have been live stream. So it might even be on the BSR site, BSR.org. Um, but now let's do as we always do at the top of the show and talk about the Green Biz Week in Review. I think the first fun story we had just published yesterday, and that's on paying employees to help you hit your climate goals. So COP21, obviously one approach to climate action, giving your employees financial incentives to help you reduce your emissions or improve your uh, packaging waste percentage. These are just some of the things that companies like Best Buy, Bank of America... Google, Apple, HP, Microsoft, pretty small group, but really high profile group are experimenting with. Yeah, and a lot of them are tech companies, as you, as you indicated, not all of them, but um, I, I was at Adobe not too long ago, and Vince Digneo there, the chief sustainability guy, you know, we were talking about, they're one of a number of companies that are offering solar, subsidizing solar, or, or they're doing a group purchase that makes the price of, of, of solar for their employees to put on their homes uh, much more affordable. And I've seen that others are doing this similar kind of group buying or subsidy with hybrid cars or electric vehicles. And, um, you know, I want to hear you talk a little bit more about what the story is about, what's going on. But this is really part of a of a much bigger issue that cuts across all companies, which is around employee engagement and when it comes to sustainability, how to keep uh, employees uh learning and engaged and, you know, thinking about this stuff in their personal lives and, of course, on the job. Yeah, to that end, one of the things that really struck me about the CDP report uh, was sort of the hierarchy embedded in it or how you engage employees at different levels of the organization in your sustainability goals. So for the C-suite or like a VP level person overseeing your building suite or something like that, um, their performance bonuses may be tied to how the company is doing on its overall sustainability goals or goals more targeted to your own operation. Like if you're an energy manager, then obviously you better be getting those efficiency numbers in line. Um, For sustainability managers, there was also a trend where their direct salaries, as might not be totally surprising, but direct salaries determined at least in part by how the company is doing on its overall climate impact. Um, And then like you alluded to, sort of this quest to engage all employees across the company. I know Bank of America's one offering a $3,000 reimbursement for buying a low carbon car. I think they said something like 7,800 employees have taken advantage of that so far. Yeah, and it really goes to um, employee uh, attracting, attraction and retention. I mean, this is something at our Green Biz Executive Network meetings where we have uh, you know, 20 or 30 companies sitting around a table talking about some of their challenges and that they have employee engagement always rises to the top and we've published a lot of stories i think we even have a special page just on employee engagement stories um and uh this is you know there's a lot you can do in terms of educating employees and and just being a good company that they want to work for but obviously money talks Right, right. And that is sort of an interesting tension that came out a bit in the CDP report, this whole idea of coopetition or competing against um, 
your rivals for talent, really, like an Apple-Google scenario, but also the goal is to sort of preach the best practices for sustainability to help other companies get up to speed on hitting their climate goals. So maybe they don't want to tell everyone exactly how they're enticing executives to hit sustainability goals because that's a competitive advantage for them. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of competition we want to see more of. So what else is is up this week? Yeah. So in sort of this whole realm of accountability and really embedding sustainability across an organization, I've been doing some reporting of late on supply chain technology, which is really sort of its own little wonky world where you think about procurement systems. And we know that supply chains reach around the world now and from automotive to the garment industry. Um, You've got issues like conflict minerals, forced labor, safety hazards, but also huge issues of waste and environmental degradation or emissions and energy efficiency. So there's just all these big areas to delve into, and we're seeing both startups and big companies looking for new approaches to that. So give us an example of some of the technologies. So they fall into a couple of different buckets. Um, On one hand, you have a company like Ecovadis, um, interesting entrepreneur who comes out of the enterprise software space who is combined with a sustainability guru. And really what they're doing is sort of trying to quantify the business case for having a sustainable supply chain, um, because a lot of times it's seen as sort of like a nice thing to strive for, but maybe not that easy to quantify. Um, So they're in that space where you sort of get a whole platform platform where you can see how your suppliers are graded on their labor practices, their environmental practices, and it all comes in these concise scorecards. Um, There are also groups out there that are working on the logistics side of the equation. Cargomatic is an interesting company down in Southern California. They are sort of combining the sharing economy with supply chain tech and trying to be like an Uber for trucking, which is an interesting model. Finally, we've got um, this bucket of labor solutions. There's a couple groups that are doing similar stuff. Labor Voices is out of Silicon Valley and Good World Solutions is our neighbor in Oakland. And they're working on mobile technologies where you're crowdsourcing information about labor conditions directly from your workers. I actually recently talked with the founder and CEO of Labor Voices, Cole Gill, and he explained to me sort of some of the unique challenges you can come up against as an entrepreneur in this space. This seems like an obvious thing to do, that someday somebody is going to connect uh, workers with each other. They're going to use some sort of social media. Mobile technology will likely be involved. Somebody is going to do some portion of this idea eventually. If they did it right, if they, if they actually use it to support workers' rights and to help workers be better off and to help employers improve working conditions, that would be fantastic. But I am not so, uh, I was not so confident that, that the first people to come out would actually do that. It would be much easier to, to run sort of a corrupt business model or uh, to use the data in different ways or to keep the data locked up and thereby avoiding a lot of the benefits that would go to workers and maybe even uh, use the data to, to, to further abuse workers. Okay, so that's a small company. How are the big guys uh, thinking about this? Are they coming out with their own uh, innovations? I did actually also talk to Cimarron Nix, who is with HP's Supply Chain Sustainability Group. She focuses heavily on this area of labor as well, um, and they've piloted a project with Labor Voices' competitor, Good World Solutions. Their product is called LaborLink, um, and she talked to me a little bit about how they implemented some of these technologies in Brazil. We have been involved with a pilot program in Brazil in 2014. 
um, that was really focused on creating worker and management health and safety teams in factories with, you know, sort of very focused goals and, and focused on having um, high impact on a specific health and safety challenge within the facility. Uh, LaborLink was involved um, in, in helping monitor the, the impact on workers of that program, and it was a great way to kind of measure during during the actual pilot itself kind of how worker perspective on health and safety management in the facility evolved, and then whether or not that was being carried forward kind of after the end of the pilot period. And so I really think that those, those types of interventions in particular and um, looking at kind of mobile technology, especially is a really important tool for the future and having kind of greater impact uh, for, for ethical sourcing programs. Let's turn now to, a, I think, a really interesting topic, which is uh, technologies for removing carbon from the atmosphere, not just reducing carbon emissions, but actually removing it. And how do you turn carbon dioxide, which you know we think of as a pollutant uh, in the form of, of climate change, uh, as an a, as a actual uh, material that we can use to make things and thereby actually drawing down the carbon in the atmosphere? And this is a story that senior writer Barbara Grady wrote uh, based on a session at Verge last week, um, and one of the uh, organizations, in fact, they had just come through Greenbiz office here for lunch a few weeks ago, is the Center for Carbon Removal, which is a nonprofit spun out of my alma mater, UC Berkeley, uh, where they're working on uh, plastics and uh, cement and uh, a whole range of uh, different technologies uh, that draw down carbon. Right, right. They're looking at sort of a lot of interest in this space, but it's sort of um, their founder compared it to solar 20 years ago. It's an area where the business case isn't totally clear yet. It's just recognized as a field that could have a huge impact on the carbon scenario down the road. I know, Joel, you've talked about this concept of carbon beyond emissions because that has tended to be our focus. Yeah, and there's some great companies. There's uh a uh, company called New Light Technologies, which has commercialized a uh, carbon capture uh, technology that combines air uh, with methane to produce a plastic material they call air carbon. Uh, it's based, they're, they're based down in Costa Mesa, and there's a, uh, they actually uh, just signed a, a uh, contract with a, small, with a plastics and chemical marketing company called Vinmar International for one billion pounds, a billion pounds, of air product, their, their carbon product, uh, over 20 years, which is a huge vote of influence, uh, confidence, I'm sorry. But there's also you know companies like Solidia Technologies in New Jersey, where they sequester carbon by injecting it into concrete during the manufacturing. You know, concrete manufacturing cement is one of the big carbon-intensive technologies. And it goes on and on. There's some nanomaterials. There's a company in Austin called Skyonic, which takes carbon dioxide emissions from power plants and turns it into carbon negative products for the manufacture of, of pipes and glass and cattle feed and who knows what else. Yeah, one of the areas I'm really curious to watch how it evolves is fossil fuel companies sort of figuring out how they should maybe be thinking about new business lines where they're sequestering carbon, things like this, as, as these companies come up against issues like stranded assets and seeing how much they're really going to be impacted. That's a really good point. Uh, I, as you know, I finished a book, which I haven't really talked about on this show, but it'll be out in the middle of next year. We'll, you'll be hearing plenty about it. But one of the par- parts of it is 
is uh, sort of a business plan for America and with sustainability at the center. And part of it is how do you deal with stranded assets that trillions and trillions, I think it's tens of trillions of dollars worth of, of unburnable carbon, which is uh, basically coal and oil that we can't really take out of the ground without exceeding, uh, but pretty much every scientist believes is the threshold for, for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So, But it's owned by uh, oil companies and coal companies and others. And if you just write it off and say you can't burn it, um, it's trillions of dollars in everybody's mutual funds and retirement accounts. And it, I mean, it would crash the economy, basically. So we propose what we call a feedstock shift, which is how do you use these, uh, these hydrocarbons for their highest and best value, which is exactly what Barbara's writing about and what we were talking about at Verge, which is uh, for these, these advanced materials and, and, and plastics and cement. You know, using uh, we use right now maybe eight or ten or fifteen percent of oil for that now, but let's use eighty or ninety or a hundred percent of it. You know, keep the jobs, keep the ability to keep that carbon on the books, but just not burning it, which you know will re- hopefully draw down carbon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll hear much more about this in the months and years to come. Um, but I also want to shift gears. I know we're going to be talking now about what's next in the high-tech world of artificial intelligence. Let's switch gears now to talk really high tech and how evolving fields like machine learning and artificial intelligence could apply to climate and sustainability issues. I'm here with GreenBiz senior writer Heather Clancy, who actually wrote about the topic this week. Hi, Heather. How are you? Hey, Lauren. Great. Hope you're well, too. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. So you cover a lot of tech trends like big data, the Internet of Things, and how those apply in the realm of clean energy and buildings and all sorts of different disciplines. Um, With artificial intelligence and deep learning, though, I think those are kind of really new fields to a lot of people and maybe more associated with things like robots and automation of labor and all that. So how did this all come on your radar? Well, so... Big data, I think, is is the catalyst for this because many of the applications that we talk about as really great ones, like energy efficiency or um, you know autonomous vehicles, smart parking, other all these great applications that could help make cities and companies more efficient, they require a lot of data processing, and frankly, humans just can't handle it. It's just the data sets are too large, um, and it's not really a very good use of our time. So the whole the whole machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence, they kind of the, those phrases come up a lot and they're kind of used interchangeably. The, the really the big idea there is that these machines, whatever they are, an internet of things, you know, a car, a sensor, will collect information and then we tell them what to look for. We tell them the the trends that that should should really prompt a little alert or we, you know, ask them to 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 look for anomalies, which which humans can interpret better than machines. So, 
for me, it's just a, a great extension of the work going on in big data and taking it to the next level, making this data really work on our behalf. Yeah, I totally see what you're saying. That makes sense. And I know at our Verge event last week in San Jose, which you covered, we had the Silicon Valley venture capitalist Steve Jurvetson, well-known mm-hmm. investor in Tesla and big companies like that, on stage talking about some of this. So here's what he right. had to say in terms of defining machine learning and deep learning and what it could mean for sustainability. Everyone likes a new euphemism to warm over something that you know, came and went in the past. So in the 80s, there was a term called neural networks. Uh, and I studied that, actually started a PhD in that area, of all things. And um, it's, it's quite simply, how can you mimic the brain by connecting a bunch of virtual nodes that look very much like neurons and synapses between them, and you have a generic learning machine. You have a series of inputs, thing that looks like a brain in a box and some outputs. And you can train this generic brain to learn things, to learn how to recognize human speech, to recognize cats on the internet, whatever it might be that you want to do. And it turns out, much like our sensory cortex, it does a really good job at things that feel like vision system, auditory system, and so forth, weirdly recapitulating evolutionary biology itself, which is an aside. Um, In the 80s, because of compute powder, where Moore's Law was at the time, it had limited applications. And then through the 90s, it powers most of the speech recognition systems underlying Siri and all the image matching stuff you see on the internet today. It will increasingly define what we feel as magic over the next few years, like autonomous driving, um, your calendaring system, knowing in a really spooky way more about you than anyone else has ever known about you, where you tend to be late, what you're doing in your life. And the way it does so is it just is a generic pattern recognizer. So to your question, deep learning is the new term for what used to be called neural networks with the added twist that they've, under the covers, there are some additional little technical details that make it learn better, maybe more efficiently than even the human brain in some cases. But the analogies to the brain are the simplest to understand. Instead of programming something to do something, you generate a computer program that is itself, like our brain, capable of learning anything so an analogy would be like a newborn baby could learn, human baby that is, could learn any language of the world, but they never learn all the languages. Any one baby learns one or maybe up to five or six languages in its life, and that's it. Same for these brains in a box. The same piece of code could be applied to many destinations. Every business could use them, frankly. Um, but it's the same generic blob of learning capacity applied to different problems. So it seems like that's going to be a big area to stay tuned to. But I know there also are some interesting concerns that arise when you're thinking about deep learning and sort of more sophisticated computing capabilities. Have you looked into that, Heather? Yeah, so it's funny. I mean, for me, it's a matter of ethics, right? Humans program these things. So there is a lot of fear. People worry, oh, these things are going to take us over. They're going to replace, you know, the, the biggest fear is they're going to replace humans in jobs. They're going to take jobs away, that they're somehow going to um, undermine people. Um, but frankly, people program these things, the, these software applications. So it's a, great, it's a great way for us to think about ethics and what we really want to see out of these applications and for us to really advance and focus on things that, again, humans are better at than machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, and the other thing I've been sort of grappling with is what any of this really has to do with climate change and sort of the big overarching sustainability issues that we deal with. Mm-hmm. I see how it would relate to like manufacturing and really high-tech Um, applications like that for efficiency or something, but are there other areas where you've seen all of this come into play in your reporting? 
Yeah, so you're seeing a couple of different areas. One, first, think about lighting, for example. Um, we talk about uh, sensors, right, that, that tell the lights to come on and off um, at, at certain times. But think about how that can, might apply in a building. So, okay, so floor number five, um, suddenly there's a lot of activity. Um, people are leaving their offices and the sensors tell the lights to go down. Well, so you might also at the same time tell the, the heating ventilation systems to go into a different mode or, you know, other, other aspects of the operation in the building. There's other great applications emerging in, in autonomous vehicles, right? So smart parking, autonomous vehicles. There's a couple of different organizations. It's NATO is one of the, the ones that was at Verge that are working on how to collect information from humans. So in this case, uh, it's got a system that collects sort of the reactions of, of people and drivers as, as they deal with certain um, situations such as traffic or, or um, you know, road hazards or you know, just speed changes, et cetera. And then it's usually, it, these systems are, are collecting that information and in turn hoping to use them for, for information about better driving. So informing people like, hey, you might want to slow down because of X or, you know, telling an insurance company, I know of at least one insurance company that's working on similar applications where they're collecting information so that they can help set rates better. That's kind of a more of an economic example, but there's some, there are some early examples emerging that are really compelling. Yeah, insurance based on deep learning. That mm. sounds like a definite area to watch. Um, one other area that I've heard a little bit of talk about is sort of how this all might apply to smart cities and sort of um, obviously that's one application for the Internet of Things. Do you mm. see these tech trends as connected in any way? Again, it's, it's a matter of data processing. So if you think about smart water as an example, uh, the information that it could inform that that sort of a system would include weather or um, occupation um, traffic trends, like how many people are coming into the city. Like, for example, the New York Marathon <laughs> is happening. You know, how would that affect the water management systems of that city? Would there be a greater demand on the supply? Would there you know, need to be um, better management of where things are coming from? And because, again, those are so many different data sources, not just one discrete set of information, there's just no way that a person could sort through all that data manually and, and make meaningful decisions on it. So I do think it's going to be instrumental for scaling scaling many of these city uh, applications out of the pilot phase and into mainstream adoption. Mm -hmm. All about actually making use of this data we've been hearing about everyone collecting for the last several years now. <laughs> yes, again. <laughs> Right. We talk about the 10 percent of, of, you know, power is going to be used for information processing, if you will. That a lot of that is from these things, these sensors, the cars, every the non-computing, uh, non-computer computing devices. Right. Right. And I know Steve Jurvetson also talked about this whole area of where he sees the most exciting applications for deep learning. So let's throw it back to him at Verge. It's 
it may be most difficult to jump to the abstraction of climate change, which is the end goal, and think perhaps to start, what are all the ways in which we can contribute to that, which could be optimization of things, route optimization for shipping and, and, and driving logistics. trucks and what have you, right, and logistics, yeah. um, building optimization, um, and I'll, maybe I'll mention a bit about each of these, obviously transportation and autonomous driving, um, agriculture, and how best to, in a sense, accelerate the evolution of food production such that we can grow what we need in the next 50 years, which is more than all food that's been grown since the invention of agriculture. That's a pretty daunting task. We have to do that in the next 50 years. Um, and in each of these cases, what they have in common is you're trying to find a pattern or optimize. These are, in a way, two sides of the same coin. In a domain that is complex, that may exceed human understanding, meaning it may never be possible that the best minds on the planet will figure out the solution, which is an interesting problem to deal with, yet we have software algorithms that can crack that and to, in a sense, transcend human intelligence to build solutions beyond our own understanding. That's, that's really what we're talking about here. Now, how, how does that apply in all these areas? Take buildings, you mentioned. Um, a company in Lighted puts sensors on all the lights in a building and thereby measures temperature and light everywhere. So it's the Internet of Things for buildings. What they find is they can reduce energy consumption by two-thirds and HVAC, in a sense, non-lighting-related energy by one-third. And, oh, by the way, in monitoring what actually happens in buildings, they realize that 20% of all commercial real estate is wasted. You could optimize. And so how do you figure out how to optimize? Well, you take all that reams of big data coming from sensors, the Internet of Things, be it weather sensors outdoors or building sensors indoors, and then apply the deep learning algorithm, the brain in a box, if you will, to figure out, wait, what are the patterns of activity? So, for example, in buildings, here was a surprise for me today that I didn't realize they were already doing this. Look at where people move and make better predictive algorithms of where the elevator should go. So not, don't wait for the button pushes to indicate where the elevator should be. Notice the pattern every day around certain parts of the day in ways that no human bothers to look or study. Here's how, and then run it, of course, through an optimization algorithm. Here's where the elevator should predictively go in a, in a complex elevator bank. You know, one of many examples for occupancy planning, what have you. So just think the, the buildings being a huge energy consumer, you can do a lot. Um, step out to transportation. You know, we don't need to build any more roads primarily. And we can accommodate all growth in traffic if we just make all cars autonomous. Well, how can they be that magical, almost human-like intelligence in how they drive? Well, under the covers, the higher level decision making that we make, like should I swerve or not, is gonna be a deep learning harness on other layers of technology. Um, maybe one last example that I think is, that relates a lot to climate and, and, and understanding our Earth is the um, satellite imagery companies. So as Planet Labs and others right over the next 12 months, put up hundreds of satellites to look at every part of the globe every day and monitor ocean health, monitor crop health of every square meter of the Earth. There's just too much imagery. There's already too much imagery for any bank of humans to find interesting images. So what do they do? They first have humans say they like a picture. Well, that's interesting. That's relevant. This is fascinating. This is whatever, interesting. And then they feed a deep learning algorithm to then scour all the pictures that no one's looked at to find similarly interesting things like new construction or a fire or a blackout at night. And it can automatically detect, oh, these are the kinds of images humans find interesting, but now I don't know why, but my brain in the box is finding me all those images yeah. that are like that. So a lot of this is about uh, making infrastructure less brittle. And, oh, yeah. yeah oh, sorry, I forgot to get to that point that you mentioned. Yes, when you build or engineer a system, it tends to be brittle. It tends to do what you expect. This is the Germanic you know, command and control, the Lego building block metaphor of engineering. It's kind of what we were trained as engineers. You build something to do what you want, and if it doesn't, it's a bug, you know, like Microsoft product stack, just a bunch of bugs, right? Um, but when you evolve them, you don't have the same degree of control. It's more like parenting than programming. Right? So you don't 
you may hope to parent something that ends up being a good teenager that does you proud and you know, does well in the world, but you can't go in later and tweak a neuron or two if you made a mistake, right? That, that, that is a apt metaphor for this programming modality. Yet, that teenager may adapt to things you never anticipated, may um, do the right thing in situations you never trained it to see, and will be much more robust and resilient. And that's true of evolution in general, that these processes of building complex systems using evolutionary algorithms, using genetic programming, using machine learning, deep learning, they all have this attribute. They tend to be robust, resilient within whatever their training environment was, but the thing you build is completely un unscrutable, just like a teenager. Thanks, Heather. I'm sure that's a storyline we can count on you to bring us much more information about. Um, in the meantime, let's switch gears to COP21. Well, this is the part of the show each week where we talk about what's going on at GreenBiz, and the word this week is Paris. And here to talk about Paris is uh, president of GreenBiz Group, my co-founder, Pete May. Bonjour, Pete. Bonjour, Joel. And uh, it's always fun to talk about Paris. As you know, I've had a rich background dealing with the French. I think for, for I've been going to business events in Paris for for 30 years and delighted um, this next phase is going to involve going to Paris with actually you and Lauren um, in December for COP21. Yeah, and so we just announced something uh, this week. Do you want to talk about it a little bit? Sure. We have a great partnership with WBCSD. Um, their council meeting is uh, going to be held. Of the, that's, that's their leadership uh, of the large companies that, uh, that form that group uh, in Paris and we're going to be live casting their event on uh, December 7th, which will give us some real direct flavor um, coming directly from Paris as we hear from both UN folks and business leaders about uh, what's happening at COP. And this is kind of unusual because they've never uh, let media in or let anybody uh, uh, live stream this. It's a member meeting and it's um, uh, so it's a little bit of an experiment for them and, and for us it's a great opportunity to let uh, all of you into the tent to see how the CEOs and senior leaders at some of the world's biggest companies and, and a lot of them from Europe, uh, are what they're talking about, what the conversation is like around climate. So uh, Lauren, you're, you're going to be in Paris too. What are you excited about? I'm excited both about WBCSD and I know innovation is going to be a big focus. The UN uh, gave out some awards this week to clean tech leaders. Some of them were in the US, like ChargePoint, people were familiar with, and also some people doing really cool stuff on like distributed energy in Africa. I know the Sustainable Innovation Forum going on in Paris should be another highlight for us as well. And Pete, uh, the, the W World Business Council on Sustainable Development, that's just one day. What else are you going to be doing that week? Uh, lot, lots of stuff. You know, Joel, as you know, we kind of, we have our, our particular, I think, at GreenBiz, our French connection. Uh, I have been doing some work with the region of Nantes, which is France's sixth biggest city, 
was there last year, and um, I think it'll be interesting for us. We're going to interact with a lot of French companies when we're there. A lot of large French companies in the energy and um, energy and resource space companies like Schneider and Saint-Gobain and others. Uh, we're going to see those French companies as well as all the other multinationals uh, there. And uh, it's just going to be a really exciting time in Paris with so many stakeholders from coming in from, from, from throughout Europe and around the world for this, uh, this exciting meeting. Yeah. And it's not just us going to France. France is coming here that uh, next week, um, the uh, Nantes uh, group, I think it's, that's who it is, you, t- you correct me, Pete, is coming to uh, 350, uh, Franco Gawa Plaza, to the Green Biz office for a day um, of, uh, well, a number of things. Tell us a little bit about what's going to be going on there. Yeah, it's a group that we do a lot of work with, Real Exchange, and uh, they bring leaders from French government and French business periodically to Silicon Valley to learn about really innovation kind of in, in two spheres um, across uh, technology and and kind of green. So uh, they're going to be doing a tour here, visiting some interesting companies in the area. And so we're going to be we're going to be having them in the office um, to really tell us a little bit about what what they're doing, Nantes positioned themselves as the as the green has been positioned as the green capital in Europe. A little bit what they're doing, as well as the main their main objective is to learn from from Silicon Valley um, technology and clean tech, um, new innovative stuff. So is this sort of the French incarnation of all the talk we hear about public private collaboration in the U.S. and elsewhere? Is that the goal? Uh, yeah, I think that's that's it. And also, you know, look, France has some amazing institutions, amazing companies, um, but like a lot of places in the world, they want the, to find out about the secret sauce of innovation. They want to foster uh, this region in Nantes has a lot of clean tech and, and technology startups. So they love the mantra of le, le startup, as they call it in, in <laughs> French, um, if you understand that one. And, uh, and they're just learning, trying to learn how to all the things we're trying to do here to uh, innovate, how to how to create new businesses and uh, as an engine for growth. Well, great cross-cultural collaboration, and uh, we're looking forward to that. And, of course, uh, Lauren, you and me uh, in Paris in just a few weeks. Uh, so, Pete May, merci beaucoup. Merci, Joel, à bientôt. Let's turn now to the Clean Power Plan. This is the uh, uh, proposal that President Obama and the EPA put forth in early August, uh, looking at at how we clean up uh, pollution from uh, utilities and power plants. And, you know, it's been like everything that comes out of the EPA or, frankly, the Obama administration, fairly controversial. But a lot of the focus has been on the so-called job-killing aspects and how do we, you know, what's the impact going to be? On on uh, coal industry and 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 all of those, it's just actually fairly small these days relative to the solar industry, but that's the the community that seems to be disadvantaged by this, at least according to the critics. But you know, there's some uh, actually communities that are going to benefit uh, greatly from this, and actually, the, those are the disadvantaged communities, uh, low income uh, communities across the country that tend to be in close proximity to this plant and uh, to these plants. And um, Barbara Grady, our senior writer, is here uh, to talk about a story that she wrote uh, that looks at at how there's some real interesting uh, uh, advantages that the clean power plan brings 
to low-income communities. Welcome, Barbara. Hi, Joel. Yeah, so the Clean Power Plan, as it came out in August, has two provisions that are really interesting. They, uh, in requiring states to come up with a plan to reduce carbon emissions by 32%, the plan also asks them to include low-income communities in devising this plan and in implementing it. And then there's a second piece that provides incentives for any state that invests in solar and wind by a certain date. And it says if you invest in low-income communities with these with these things, then you get even more credits. So give us an example of a state that's already done something like this. Yeah, California has done this. Its cap-and-trade program was begun several years ago. And within that, the state sets aside a certain portion of the proceeds that are now almost a billion dollars. A certain percent have to go to low-income communities. So last week we spoke with Bien Trong, who is the National Director of Green for All. She led the effort to have this state carve out some of the proceeds for the communities most affected by pollution, the low-income communities that live near power plants and ports and highways and so on. And this is what she had to tell us. Poverty and pollution. These issues traditionally have been seen as so big, they have to be tackled separately. What we now understand is that these issues are so interconnected that they can't actually be solved unless they are tackled together. And what we need to do is begin understanding and addressing that. California, 450 entities create 85% of our pollution. We wanted to make sure that we were tackling this issue. So we passed a law in 2006 that required us to get to 1990 levels of greenhouse gas emissions by 2020. To get there, we needed a plan. We needed to make sure that polluters were actually ramping down their pollution. And so we created cap and trade, which said you have to clean up or, or pay up. And that money went into a fund called the Climate Investment Fund. I and a group of friends came together and said, let's make sure that that money wasn't going to make things worse between the eco-haves and the eco-have-nots. We got to make sure that money is going to the communities most impoverished, most polluted, and most bearing the brunt of climate change. Together, authored by Senator De Leon, we got a law passed in 2012. And in the last two years of implementation, this law created nearly a billion dollars for those communities. So we spent a year asking the community, what is the priority? How do we actually begin addressing the issues that you face most? And that billion dollars, it went to creating affordable housing by transit, free and low-cost energy efficiency and renewable energy. It went to creating van pools for migrant farm workers that, and rural areas that didn't have a fixed bus line. It went to creating electric car shares for families who couldn't afford their own cars. It went to creating electric trucks and buses, huge issue for environmental justice communities living by Long Beach and Port of Oakland. We went to creating trees for concrete jungles, urban forestry. These were things, importantly, told to us by the community facing the pollution. They said this is what they needed in order to grow the economy and to help support their needs. So how do businesses come into play here, Barbara? Well, Vianne actually addressed that. At the end of her talk, she turned to the business and said, this is your call also. There's a big opportunity. There's money on the table to be made. And here's what she said. My call to you is this. We got to figure out how do we build this into our business plan. You're the smartest people in the country. Clean tech, 
government, environmentalists, leaders around the country, this is your call to action. How are you going to figure out how to build this into your business plan? And this isn't charity, right? When you build your customer base, when you grow the market, you're actually helping to create more public support, which translates into political support, which translates into supporting policy that comes back that's beginning to help us tackle this global issue, right? So this is good for us all. So Van Jones, who founded Green for All, agreed that there's a huge opportunity out there. And this is what he told us last week. That's a huge opportunity because all 50 states, to your point, how do you go from California to the other 49 states? All 49 states have to sit down and come up with a plan. That plan can include everybody or it can include a very small number of people. Uh, that's a tremendous exercise in democracy for the first time across the country to sit down and talk about when you push down on pollution, how do you push up on solutions? Well, that sounds great. So what happens next, Barbara? Well, states have to come up with their plan within two years, and we'll see what plays out. Great. Thanks very much. That's senior writer Barbara Grady. Thank you, Barbara. You're welcome. Let's shift gears now and look at the week ahead. Joining us now is Green Biz Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel. Thanks for joining us, Elsa. Thanks. So what do we have to look forward to next week? Cecil Wagi just sent us a cool story for next week. She's the Director of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services at BSR, and her piece takes an analogy from high school chemistry. It's about supersaturation. So she sees business sustainability reaching a transformational point after years of only modest progress. One sign is how so many companies from Apple to Unilever are committing to 100% renewables. But she asks how many science-based goals will be made before becoming modus operandi with investors, insurers, regulators, and consumers. Speaking of big corporate announcements, our senior writer Barbara Grady tracked a bunch around Climate Week, including how the six biggest U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley all called for a price on carbon and for taking strong action at COP21. Barbara's following up with a lot more details beyond the initial announcement. If you can't tell your RE100 apart from your C2ES, I am working on a who's who roundup of COP21 coalitions. One thing we've noticed is that a lot of corporations don't seem to be sending their CSOs or CEOs to the UN climate talks in Paris, even though they're making so many big commitments in advance. Instead, many appear to be joining forces under these umbrella groups. Who is in them and what does that mean? In addition, we'll have an early look at new books from our friends Rick Fedrizzi of the U.S. Green Building Council and author Simran Sethi. Great. Thanks so much, Elsa. And to that end, we also have a COP21 webcast coming up next week. That's Paris and Beyond. What's the business opportunity at COP21? That's coming up on November 12th. And then November 17th, we'll switch gears to look at the circular economy and how the private sector is reimagining the future of business. Well, thanks, guys. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Uh, you can find links to all the organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. 
Uh, thanks, as always, to Saraya Malconian, our technical director. And uh, thanks to you for listening. We love to hear your comments. Uh, send us any feedback or suggestions or ideas to 350 at greenbiz.com. And as always, for the latest news, insight, and resources on sustainable business and clean technology, visit greenbiz.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our daily newsletter, Green Buzz. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.